0: For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I'll leave your Bibles open to that passage at this stage. Uh, This talk is not so much uh, working through a passage like we did last time, but I'll be basically summing the thoughts out of Romans 8. Uh, and I hope, especially in view of the announcement of lunch, that uh, this talk will actually be a bit shorter than the last one. And then I'm going to get you into some small groups to do a bit of a discussion exercise, uh, and then we'll hopefully have a chance to talk that over in the bigger group again before we, we finish. So that's my plan for uh, for the rest of the morning. So think about our world and the gospel. We've seen that. God calls us to live as His people, uh, as souls and light, and that means living for the kingdom. But what does that mean? How, How do we do that? One of the things that Christians are often confused about is how we should relate to society and to our culture. Let me give you an example. I think about education. What do we do with our kids and education and school? Uh, one answer might be to say, well, um, we accept state schooling. Uh, Our kids go on to state school, they get whatever they get there, and uh, then we try and keep them involved in youth group and uh, Bible study and church and all of that as well. And they kind of live in two parallel worlds without much crossover between their school life and their church Christian life. Now, I'm not sure that's what my parents would have said was their philosophy at all, but that was basically what I experienced as I was growing up. I remember as a teenager very clearly feeling like who I am on Sundays at church or Friday night at youth group is really quite different to who I am at school. So we can just sort of treat them as two parallel tracks. All we can say as Christians, uh, we want to get involved in the state school, And put Jesus on the agenda, put the gospel on the agenda in the state schools. So we join the PNC, uh, we support scripture, uh, SRE, we try and get a Christian chaplain appointed in the school. Uh, The kind of core business education of maths and science and geography and all of that continues on and we don't really do much about that. Uh, But what we want to do is within the school system, uh, try and put Jesus on the agenda, try and have the gospel there. there. Or we could try and go uh, maybe a step further along that track and try and actually somehow reclaim state schooling for God. Uh, so this would be a third approach. Now, I saw this uh, just recently uh, in some emails that I was part of when we were talking about what should the Presbyterian Church Say to the inquiry that's happening with the upper house of the state parliament at present about the ethics classes, uh, special ethics education. So, you remember, they've set up in, in theory, they've set up everywhere, but it's only really happening in a few places. SEE as a parallel with SRE. And there were some people who wanted to argue that the whole approach of SEE was just bankrupt, that ethics without a Christian foundation is empty. And that what we needed to say to the state government was, not only do they need to get rid of ethics, but they needed to make far clearer the Christian foundation of any education in the state school. Uh, We need to somehow rebuild within our state system uh, some Christian foundations. So that would be a a third approach. Of course, a fourth approach would be to set up an alternative Christian school. And often in that approach, it's not just ethics, but everything, science and English and social studies and everything is to be taught from uh, a Christian perspective and from a Christian point of view. Now my guess is you recognise those kind of four approaches. And uh, in most churches, those sort of views are all mixed up together. Sometimes they're all mixed up within one person. Uh, certainly, you're often mixed up. You know, there'll, there'll be families and people in, in a church that have one of those views quite strongly, another one has another view quite strongly, and sometimes people are very passionate about this. I'm not trying to reignite a um, debate about it, but just to use it as an illustration that each of those positions has a certain assumption about how Christians should relate to society and culture. How should we do it? Not just with education, but everything we come across. Are we kind of living with it, but with a Christian track as well? Are we trying to use it to put Jesus on the agenda? Are we trying to do something more profound in trying to change our society and our culture? Or are we trying to set up an alternative? Uh, and you might be able to think of other approaches as well. I want to suggest to you that the first step in Dealing with this is just to try and understand our world. Uh, it's very clear in the Bible that the Bible writers, the Old Testament prophets, Jesus, the apostles, understood their world. Uh, and they talked about all sorts of areas of life uh, as they proclaimed God's word. And uh, one of the, uh, the great things about being a Christian is that we know God, and become His children. Jesus says, this is life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ who, that, at whom God has sent. And that's the great starting point of being a Christian. Our great delight is to know God, to know him better and deepen our fellowship and our knowledge of him. But Jesus who says, uh, this is life, to know God and Jesus Christ who he has sent, Goes on in that same chapter to say in prayer to God, uh, This is my prayer is not that you should take them out of the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. But as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So even though we know God and we think about God, knowing and thinking about God actually then calls us to know and think about life, about the world that we living. And to live in the world well demands that we understand it. So how do we do that? Well, I want to say to you that the answers for understanding the world are not in the Bible. You didn't think I was going to say that you? <laughs> They're not in the Bible. If you want to work out whether your kids should be on Facebook, or how much money you should invest in the bank, the answer to that is not in the Bible. In fact, in order to understand the world, we have to look at our world. Uh, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of meeting someone who thinks that they're an expert about something that you actually know a fair bit about. It can be frustrating to say the least, can't you know, somebody who's had no experience really in football going on and on and on about football, uh, and you're thinking, actually, you've got no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> uh, and Christians sometimes are in a bit of danger that we can declare ourselves experts on things uh, of the stuff of life when we haven't really looked at it very closely. So what do we get from the Bible? I want, I want to suggest to you, rather than getting all the answers to how to understand the world, what the Bible gives us is the questions. It gives us the right sort of questions to ask, the right ways in which to look at the world. Uh, John Calvin, a great Reformation teacher, had a, had a wonderful image for this uh, when he's talking about understanding God's creation particularly and he says how God's glory shines in the creation but it's no value to us until we know God through his word and he says the scriptures are like like spectacles that you put on glasses that you put on which once you put them on they then allow you to see uh, the world that God's made clearly Uh, it's only Through them, it's only in the light of knowing God, it's only because of what God has revealed to us in Christ, and that we have in the Bible, that we can have the right set of questions that we take to look at the world and to try and understand it. So what I want to give you is what I think are the basic questions we need to ask, uh, or a framework for those questions, in how we think about the world. And in one sense, it's very simple, it's just to think about the picture the Bible gives us of what... what our situation is, what kind of world is that we live in. So first of all, the Bible tells us that God made the world and he made it good. Genesis chapter 1 says again and again, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And we actually need the Bible to tell us that. Uh, because for reasons that we'll think about in a moment, when you look at the world, it doesn't always look that good. Um, it's perhaps pretty easy to see it looking good on a day like today, but I'm sure you can think of plenty of times when the world doesn't look so good to you. And there certainly have been Christians who have thought that what God has made is bad. That being spiritual means getting away from the physical, material, cultural, social world that God has made. Uh, In the medieval church, that was expressed often in some of the monastic movements, where to be spiritual, you retreat from society and live in your monastery. Uh, You dedicate yourself to prayer. Uh, You take a, a vow of silence so you don't even speak to the people around you. You don't work with your hands. And there was a common view in the... Uh, medieval church, that the really saintly spiritual people did that. And they even talked about the monks and the secular priests. The secular priests were the people who had the, the parish ministries, who actually lived amongst the people and talked to the people and mixing with sinners and certainly working for a living uh, was sub spiritual. But that spirituality of separation that says the world that God's made is a bad place is not from the Bible. Uh, Have a look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. Paul's writing to Timothy about people who say uh, refrain from certain foods and don't get married. And, he's, and Paul's answer is, everything God has created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. And you know, coming away for a weekend together, like this helps to say that, but that that's what we believe. Um, you know, what do we do as Christians together? Well, we pray and we read the Bible, but we also... Play and we eat and we go bushwalking. Apparently someone's going to do something on the tower out there. I'm not quite sure exactly what the tower involves yet, but you are doing it. No, I don't know what it is. And that, see, that's not an unspiritual thing to do. The things we do with our bodies, the eating and the, all the work we do, and that's part of participating in this world that God has made. So the world has been made true. But, of course, that's not the whole story um, at all. Things are not the way they're meant to be. They're been corrupted and distorted. Uh, we've been corrupted and distorted. So in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the situation of humanity, apart from those who have been through Christ, been given the Spirit, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, verse 5. The mind governed by the flesh or by the sinful nature is death. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot do so. Those in that realm cannot please God. So we are people who have been corrupted and distorted. We can't live the way we're meant to live. We turn away from God instead of turning to Him, and that, of course, flows out into uh, to have an effect on the whole world, not only just on all the people. So, further down in chapter eight, verse twenty-one, creation itself will one day be liberated from its bondage to decay. That's what it's like just now in bondage to decay. Verse twenty-two: We know the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. There is so much that is wrong with our world. We live in a good world, but it's a good world that's been corrupted and destroyed. And we can list off what's wrong with the world, the physical world. We can think of natural disasters and we can think of uh, illnesses and and we can think of what's wrong with the social world. But we have to recognise that we are at the very heart of this problem. Uh, it's us, it's humanity that constantly twists and abuses God's will. I mean, think of what happens with something like science. Uh, our capacity to investigate the world and explore it and understand it and change it is part of the good world that God's made. He's made people able to do that. And, and there have been great blessings and amazing achievements that come from the scientific enterprise, but constantly we use it in all sorts of stupid and destructive and abusive ways. And so when we look at the world, what we constantly see is a good world gone wrong. And we experience the goodness and the corruption all mixed up together. It's not as if there are some bits of life now that are good and other bits that are really terribly corrupted. All of life, in different ways, is both wonderful as God's creation and corrupted and distorted at the same time. And often the most painful and awful experiences that we have in life are those that come to us from the very good things that God has made, some of the highest things that God has made, going wrong. And so our experience of life is... Both good and bad, created good and corrupted and distorted all at the same time. But we also live in a world that is preserved. Things are not as bad as they could be. The Bible tells us that God continues to sustain the world, both physically and socially. So because of sin, God announces his curse on the world, but he doesn't simply throw us out into a cursed world. He limits the effects of that curse. So Jesus in Matthew 5 says that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In Romans 13, Paul talks about how God uses the Roman Empire, the emperor, but. Perhaps Nero, who persecuted Christians, and Paul can say that he's a servant of God to punish unrighteousness. That even with an empire that has no Christian commitment at all, no, that is against Christianity, Paul can see God using that to actually preserve order and keep our people safe. So God preserves the world. But we also live in a world that is being redeemed. And that's the wonderful news of the gospel. So Romans eight twenty one, verse that I'd already mentioned, talked about how the creation is in bondage to the cave. look what it says: the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to the cave and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The whole creation has been groaning. As in pains of childbirth, the whole imagery of childbirth, something's going to come out of this. Something good is coming. So God's plan is not just to scrap his creation, but to restore it and to glorify it. That's why the Bible declares the resurrection of the dead. That we're not just going to survive death, that death will be overcome and reversed and undone. And we already participate in that. Verse 11 the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. And so he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. And so Paul here is not using the word kingdom, but it's really the same idea as Jesus talks about when he says the kingdom is coming. God's redemption is already happening. We're already people who have God's spirit and Live for God, renewed by His Spirit. And so in verse 12, we have an obligation to live a new way because we belong to a new world that God is coming. We have an obligation, Paul says, not to the flesh to live according to it, but by the Spirit to put to death and misdeeds of the body and live. In verse 13. So that redemption that Jesus is bringing is already been worked out, especially in us. And we see that redemption in relationships. I think about how many times in the New Testament uh, the apostles, like Paul in his letters, but also in the book of Acts, make such a big thing about Jews and Gentiles. And Jews and Gentiles being brought together and living together and not being separated. What's that about? Why is that so important? Well, one of the reasons it's so important is that because God, through the church, through the redeemed relationships of God's people, God is demonstrating now the kingdom that is coming. The fact that Jews and Gentiles who in the Old Testament were to be separated from each other and who in the ancient world, in in the world of the first century, were divided from each other, at one place are brought together to live as brothers and sisters. That is in God's church. And so already, within God's community, you start to see what God is bringing about in his redemption. So that's how we see the world. Good, distorted, preserved, and being redeemed. And it's in that mix that we understand the world. And so these are the kind of questions we need to ask as we look at all sorts of parts of life, whether it's education or money or music or film or whatever it is you're thinking about. How is this? of God's good creation? How is it distorted by sin? How is it being preserved by God? And can we see it as being redeemed especially among God's people? And I think wherever you, whatever you look, whatever topic it is you're thinking about, you'll see that. You'll be able to see creation and sin and preservation and some kind of sign of Redemption in the church. Now, I said that the questions come from the Bible and what the answers, and I think that that's basically right, that it's this set of questions that we then take and look at the world. But in fact, some of the answers come directly from the Bible as well. If you think about something like money, you don't just have these questions from the Bible, but the Bible tells you what's good about ownership and what goes wrong with ownership. It actually already helps us to start answering those questions. Now, you might have two questions of your own, as, as I you might have more than two, but two, one, two that might occur to me. Uh, first of all, you might say, is this really about Jesus? Um, this question of looking at culture and society and, and asking these questions, is that still about Jesus? I hope it is. I hope you can see that it is. It's about understanding the world in the light of the story of Jesus. Because it's only because of what Jesus has done that we understand that it is a good world which has been distorted. And certainly it's only through him that it is being redeemed and that we have some share in that. And is it about living? Well, I think it is. At least it's the first step Just understanding where we are and what's going on is the first step in living well with where we are and with what's going on. In order to be kingdom people, to live as salt and light, we actually need to understand the world that we're living in. We need to understand uh, the good things in creation and the distortion of sin. We need to see how we might be part of preserving and perhaps even beginning to be a sign of redemption. So, what I want to do now is get you to ask these questions about a part of life that um, all of us are involved with, some way or other. Now, the heading that I had there was work, um, and that was what I was thinking, but I've changed my mind about what we're going to do. Uh, partly because I thought, are there, are there many people who went, many guys selected um, men's convention this year? No, okay, well there you go, that, there's no need to change it at all because they did work, so I thought that might be just uh, going over old territory. But also I thought, let's talk about something that there's probably even more in the Bible about and is more immediate to all our experiences and that is the experience of family. And what I want to do, and let me I'll just spend a few minutes explaining it, and then we'll get you to do this, get you into groups of Three or four, say four or five people, something like this, and see if you can think of an example, or hopefully two or three examples if you can, of the goodness of family life. What's God's good pattern for family life? How is family life affected by sin? How is it corrupted and distorted? How is it still preserved, and and what signs of redemption are there uh, for Christians in the area of family life? So try and think of two or three examples of each of those. So you don't have to think of every you know the whole long, long list. Just two or three under each of those questions, and see if and this is kind of bonus points or something. Um, See if you can think of Bible passages which are perhaps examples of each of those, or explain something about each of those. Uh, Now, you may not be able to think of a Bible passage for every example you think of, and I guess that's part of my point of saying, to get the questions from the Bible And as we think about, for instance, how family life is distorted, you might be able to think of ways that aren't particularly talked about in the Bible. I think there are ways that you also see it in the Bible. Um, So, if you can think of some Bible references to go along with each of the categories, that'd be good. And if you can't think of, don't worry too much about not being able to think of exactly what the verse or chapter is, even if you just say, you know, the story about so-and-so, just something to get you thinking about where you see it's in bottom.